have you slept on a bed that's changing beneath you and, and not for the good? In the sense of a collapse, or a bed that's, uh, anyway, one can try to buy an expensive mattress topper, uh, like we did, been there, done that, and try to remedy the situation. Uh, ultimately, we, you know, try and go with the new normal, but what's needed is, is a, an establishing of a firm foundation, a solid foundation. And uh, we've had to go that route and just whatever remedies we tried, it's like, no, we need the, the new. We need the, the, the mattress that's not collapsing or not giving way. And so what's my point? The, well, the world, world's not changing for the good around us. And, and the word says we're called to be in the world, but not of the world. And so a seldom quoted scripture that gets under, I think, my skin and perhaps all of our skin is, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. And that's 1 John 2.15. That's a challenging scripture. Do you love your football team? Oh, yeah, of course. Do you love this? Do you love that? You know, you could put in lots of things in, in, into that. But we can't, friends, go along with the world's drumbeat or march to the world's drumbeat, or dance to its tune, or slumber in its soft swallowing embrace. The world would love to envelop you and just consume you and, and dumb you down. You know that saying, dumb you down, just kind of the lowest common denominator, the status quo, just bring you to, to a place where there's no difference, you know. If we were put on, I'm just going off-piste here. Do you know what I mean by that? If we were put on charge or trial, to, to see if we could be seen to be a Christian. Would there be enough evidence to convict us? You know, would our neighbors say, oh, no, they, they you know, count us cultural. They're swimming upstream. They're, they're not like us. You know, or would it be like, oh, they're just like us. They're very nice people. You know? um, because something of, of who we are should, light exposes darkness, and darkness hates it. God, God, darkness tries to put out the light. You've got to know that. And uh, so how many of you are are familiar with orienteering, um, map reading, and those who've done the Duke of Edinburgh. Um, who's done the Duke of Edinburgh? I haven't, but my kids have. Um, yeah, I thought I had. I thought I had my compass here. I've lost my compass. Where's my compass? Oh no! How can I orienteer without a compass? <laughs> um, so, friends, yeah, you need you need. Need a compass. I mean, uh, this is the, what before GPS or sat navs or that kind of thing, um, and it can be quite challenging, even with the technological aids we've got out there. But navigating through life with eternity in mind is is way more serious. It's life and death, and that's why one preacher said, "God stamp eternity on my eyeballs, so I see everything in the light of eternity." Like, what's that going to count for eternity? What's my, you know, this or that or the next thing that I'm giving myself to? What will it count for eternity? Will it count for eternity? Only one life, it will soon be passed. Only that which is done for Christ will last. Do you believe that? And so, friends, when I, when I think of spiritual life and death, it's at stake. Well, I, just what I mean by that, decisions determine destiny. Every decision we make. Our decisions can be good or bad, but even one good life decision, one good life decision is worth more than a thousand small ones. Your life partner, your, where you choose to fellowship and commit yourself and whatever, you know, where you take root. Will you bear fruit? If you do, if don't take root and you just keep being uprooted, you're not going to 
be established and bear fruit. So God says, take roots and bear fruit. And so when I think of, of life and directions, and, and we look at that in 2023, what direction do you want your life to take in this year ahead? Because I think the next seven years up to 2030 are critical. I'm, I'm saying that. I believe that prophetically are critical because the bridegroom is coming back for the bride. And we can be foolish or wise, like the parable of the 10 virgins. They were, all of them were virgins. All had lamps. All went out to meet the bridegroom. All became drowsy and slept. But only five had oil in their lamps. In the way, words of way more than a campfire chorus, give me oil in my lamp, keep me burning, burning, burning. Give me oil in my lamp, I pray. Do you remember singing that? <laughs> I do. Give me oil in my lamp, keep me burning, burning, burning. Keep me burning till the break of day. Sing hallelujah. I won't go through the whole chorus. Sing Hosanna, sing Hosanna. To the, to the King of Kings. But friends, we can be asleep in the light. We can uh, be believers in name only, but not disciples, denying ourselves, taking up our cross, following Him. You see, the Father in His grace and in His wisdom sends a herald with a midnight cry in that parable. The bridegroom's coming. He's on His way. Awaken. Do not delay coming to Him because He's coming to you. Listen to his cry. Listen to the rousing call to awaken. And the friends, the message in my heart for today is I believe a midnight, I believe is a midnight cry message. We're in the midst of a midnight cry. It's been prophesied in Isaiah 40. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. We're in a wilderness. The world is a bit of a wilderness spiritually, a bit of a desert. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall be, become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. I love that. You see, John the Baptist found his uh, calling to his generation to prepare, preparing the way. And it was a message of repentance and, 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 and it was radical and it was wild and it was, and it was like nothing they'd ever seen before. But friends, we're in a generation now where others are called to prepare the way of the Lord, to usher in Jesus' second coming. Just as His first coming was ushered in with a John the Baptist coming in the spirit and the power of Elijah, so there will be others who come in the spirit and the power of Elijah to prepare the way of the Lord. You see, the metaphors speak of a great leveling. And that speaks of personal repentance and a reformation of society, making the world a place fit for the coming king. A great revealing, a great unveiling of the glory of the Lord, such that all people shall see it. You will see the glory of the Lord. I believe that. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, Habakkuk 2.14 tells us. His glory is ever increasing from the highest... Uh, from the valleys to the highest mountains, it will cover the whole earth. And I believe we're in this age of glorification. I do believe that. We sang a little bit of that this morning. Because arise, I mean, with the scripture on the board, if you took the time to read it on the way in um, Isaiah 60, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Can you say, arisen upon me? <laughs> for behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will rise upon you. 
and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. You are in God's end time purpose. You are, you are alive for such a time as this. This is a privilege that you are alive today to see this and to be part of this. The path of the righteous, it says in Proverbs 4, it's not on the board, but thanks to you. <laughs> it's the one I added in early this morning. The path of the righteous is like the morning sun, shining ever bright, brighter till the full light of day. But the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. You've got light increasing and you've got darkness and people lost in that darkness. Do you see the glory of God coming? Do you we hear the invitation of Jesus and John uh, to John in Revelation 4.1? Come up here. Come up to a higher way. Come up into experiencing the more, the glory, the, the, the thing that I've purposed. He, he will be glorified. Jesus will be glorified. His church will be an instrument of His glory. However, will we be able to sustain and carry the weight of the glory of God that's coming to His church? That, friends, is the question. We could be found lacking like the foolish virgins or we could be found ready and waiting, a ready and waiting bride for the coming bridegroom. Friends, when I say these things, I'm challenging myself. We've got to be wise. We've got to make preparations. Or are we adrift, carried on the tides of popular culture, acceptable mediocrity and lukewarmness? Do we think we're okay like the, the Laodicean church or Laodicean church? That, uh, that, but but we, in, a, in, in a place of desperately needing self for our eyes, we've got to take stock of our condition. The church, the end time church, I want to call it in Revelation 3, this Laodicean church, it's described as wretched, pitiful, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And when we start to acknowledge our own carnality, friends, I, I recognize this. There's fleshly appetites. I recognize there's some carnal things. I recognize there's even some compromise. I recognize there's some weariness, uh, our slumber, our, our apathy, our indifference. And, and I, I've got to take stock. It's like that recalibrating at the beginning of the year, recognizing certain things. Um, scripture promises if we repent, times of refreshing will come upon us. There'll be a Holy Spirit reviving, a quickening, the Word and the Spirit coming together. We'll see the great move of God coming back to His Word, coming back to the things of the Spirit, walking in step with the Spirit. And so it's going to require some faith goals. And uh, I love Rick Warren. He's kind of put this quite simply, F-A-R-T-H, focused, attainable, individual, traceable, and heartfelt. And so he speaks out about seven ways, practical ways to help us to just recalibrate, reset, refocus. One, physical health. How would I like to be healthier? And friends, there's a little uh, handout that these are on with a little th area to fill in. The ball's in your court. It's in my court to look at these things. How would I like to be healthier? And both my wife and I are looking at that seriously, our diet and this and that and exercise. And, and uh, she's probably doing a bit better than me right now. <laughs> but we, we're working on, on that. But anyway, I mustn't get distracted. Spiritual health. How would you like to grow? Intellectual health, how would, what would you like to learn? Relational health, which ones do you want to see improved? 
vocational work health. What new skills do you want to learn? Financial health, what do you want to change? Emotional health, what do you want to feel? How do you want to feel? Do you want to feel different? If so, how's that going to happen? You know, what are you going to do to have fun and relax? Because that's part of God's pattern is, is rest and recharge and refresh and whatever. So these friends are like compass readings, each one of them. And which are you headed? Which way are you headed in each of those seven key areas? Friends, if you, here's a thought for you. <laughs> I don't know how profound it is, but here's a thought. <laughs> if you keep going in the same direction, you'll end up where you're headed. You'll only become the person you're becoming right now. So what course alterations do you need to make? Friends, in a, in a magnetic compass, and this is a magnetic compass, there's another pull. There's often other forces working on that compass and, and, and an attraction or a force that can be working on it. And then it won't reveal a true compass bearing. If I had a magnet in my pocket, it's going to mess with this, this compass. And uh, in the same way, we can deviate from the truth of God's word. It's almost like the compass has to be God's word over our lives. It's like this is the, the, the navigation. <laughs> it's like everything is filtered through God's word. Every decision, every thought, every action and reaction. It's, it's like, God, help us to, to come under your word <clears throat> and not elevate ourselves over his word. Friends, even if you, if you go off one degree, it doesn't sound like much. And given long enough, I can be miles apart. So if I just allow something to come between Bibi and I and I just walk along that path long enough, I could be... She could be out of eyesight <laughs> or earshot <laughs> if we just allow ourselves to, you know, drift. And, and um, so I, I, uh, I don't want to be lost and distant from God. I don't want to be lost to wrong thinking, lost to the patterns of this world. I think navigating through life is dangerous enough because we've got to ask ourselves what's shaping us positively or negatively. Friends, this thing is probably shaped. I've chucked it under my chair. <laughs> I'm battling with all my props and aids this morning. This thing has probably shaped the world more than you and I will ever imagine. And not all for good. We have to look at this. You know, It's more than just a convenience. We've become so dependent on this. So dependent. I mean, we had a media fast some years ago, and there was some people actually had to lock their phones in their drawers to, to manage not to go there and not have the key. You know what I'm saying? That was the level at which it had such a hold over some. And I, and I, th and I think it's, I'm, I'm challenging myself, friends. I'm, when I stand up here, it's like I'm the first one I'm preaching to. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Um, it affects our social interaction, our communications skills are affected and suffer. There's an MIT sociologist, Sherry Turkle, and she warns that conversation is the most human and humanizing thing that we can do. It's where empathy is born, where intimacy is born. <clears throat> and then she goes on to say, we've actually moved away from conversation in a way that's hurting us. Go to any restaurant. Is there free-flowing conversation or is there distraction? I mean, I've seen something horrific where I saw a child that can't walk yet scrolling up on a phone with their toe and they think it's great and it's funny that this kid's captivated with his phone and can't yet w crawl never mind, and is scrolling. <laughs> it's scary stuff. I mean, to put a kid in front of a tablet or a phone or a this or a that 
to entertain them. It's just like, well, there you go, there you go, there you go. And what are we doing? Um, you know, there's multiple apps on our phones that are clamoring for our attention. You don't need to, to uh, fetch a newspaper in the morning. Do you know that? You can just turn on your phone and you could have multiple news channels that are giving you updates and multiple categories. Um, you don't need to, to uh, switch on the news, on the telly. It's right there. You don't need to wait for the postman to deliver your letters. Your email box will notify you 24-7. You can never get away from your work because your work is tied into this. And you know what I'm saying? There's just... Uh, Whatever you're interested in creates a profile. You've been profiled with cookies. Do you know what that means anyway? These things are telling you and, and studying you and knowing what you like and don't like and what to advertise to you and sell you and, and offer you. You do one little search on a, on a holiday destination, you will be inundated. <laughs> um, so there's, you know, and then you'll get phone calls, more messages, more mail. Can you ever escape? Are we ever away from our phones? And and friends, when I grew up, and I'm dating myself, when we, you know, when we, when, we, anyway, there was a phone, a landline. Does anyone have a landline here? There's a few people left in the hallway. And so when my sister generally was on the phone and she would be gabbing away, eventually I would hear, you've been on the phone long enough, get off the phone. You know, whether they were waiting for a call or she just was a bit concerned that it was, you know, going on a bit, whether it was to a friend or a boyfriend or something. But, but there was like this, uh, within earshot of the family, there was communication that was more open, which, which had some safeguards. It's like, are they whispering? Are they gossiping? Are they, you know what I'm saying? There was just a little bit of a, like, what's going on there? Is there something unhealthy happening? Is this going on? Too, is this becoming too intense? You know, why is their voice raised or why is this? And, then, and yet now we're in a nif- different minefield. Um, mobile phones have meant that, that uh, your communication is unmonitored. You, you, it's unrestricted. Day and night, you could be three o'clock in the morning. Um, you could be doing stuff. You, you, in places we wouldn't ordinarily gain, engage in conversation. You can take your communication device into most intimate places that you would never. You could be talking to someone while you're on the toilet. And I've done it. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> no, not to any of you, but anyway. <laughs> but, but, you know, we've, be, we've been there. And, and, and then over this device, stuff gets shared that you wouldn't share in person or in a public space, which was kind of the phone in the hallway was the public space. So you share stuff that, that is, is not appropriate, that wouldn't you know, be shared personally. You wouldn't say it personally. And, uh, and I think even Bibbs and I were talking about uh, the dangers. One of the, uh, to illustrate how dangerous or distracting mobiles can be, if you're caught on a mobile phone, how many points against your license? If you're driving and you're on a mobile phone, how many points? What does that mean? A big insurance hike on your insurance. But if you've had your license less than two years, go back to beginning and start again. Your whole license is taken away. That's scary because they realize there's some dangers just in the physical, never mind the spiritual health. Your spiritual health is even more important. Well, sorry, it is, it's important. So I, I, there are some att- forces of attraction. I don't want to labor that. And we spoke last year about staying in your lane, that we've got our own race to run. And so we can deviate and we can drift from our race if we're not careful. And uh, this magnetic north, uh, there's a built-in bias, unfortunately, in the culture of the day. 
that's a pull from what's being put in the media or in the communication or on news or whatever. There's a built-in bias. The culture of the, the day, the ideologies that are exerting an influence on a changing society. And God and His Word are unchanging. It's the same yesterday and today and forever. Heaven and earth will pass away, but God's Word will never pass away. It will remain. And friends, that's why we need to align ourselves with God's Word. God, when we think of Jesus praying for all His disciples in John 17, 17, sanctify them in accordance, to live in accordance with the truth. Your Word is truth. Let me say that again. Sanctify them to live in accordance with the truth. Your Word is truth. Your Word is truth. Truth applied transforms. And uh, maybe this will shock you, but I've heard it recently that 98% of teenagers who come to the Lord Jesus Christ do not have a biblical worldview. Friends, we've got to change that. They will not see things the way the Bible sees them because of their upbringing, their education, their influences, the British system, the kingdom, the British values, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I don't have perhaps time to unpack all of that. But we're going to need to realign, recalibrate our campus, compass to, to a biblical moral compass to refocus on a righteous, holy, godly standard. Friends, just because... People burn the midnight oil. Doesn't mean it's okay for you. Part of tending our wicks is to go to bed at a godly hour. Have you heard that saying? That's, you, you, what an ungodly hour to be away or staying up. We've got to go to bed at a godly hour so that we can give God the first fruits of the day. One of the most practical things, I know South Africa's time zones are really different. And so the winter months, etc., are very similar to the summer months. There's only like an hour or two fluctuation of light. So people generally, when we arrived here, we would wake up at five o'clock every morning. We still get people phoning us and there's two hours difference. Like, why the heck are you still in bed? Like, what's going on? And they just don't realize that people don't get generally out of bed. You don't phone someone before seven o'clock in the UK. But there, you, you awake at five o'clock in South Africa, you know, five, six o'clock. And, and friends would say to me, that, that was, I go to bed at 10 o'clock. If I don't go to bed at 10 o'clock, I cannot get up and have a quiet time. And that was the most practical advice this guy ever gave. I thought, wow, that's pretty good, you know. Your, your morning starts the night before. And so we've got to make some of the adjustments, particularly at the beginning of the year, whether it's going through a reading plan, whether it's on a U version reading plan or some other reading plan, that you actually are con consistent. Is that the word? Just working through something. And, and then you can spend the best time of the day in the Word and in prayer. And... Uh, and friends, unfortunately, the way things go, there's, just because everybody's doing something doesn't make it right or make it okay. Just because everyone listens to a certain type of music doesn't make it okay. Just because everyone watches a certain soap opera, whether it's Coronation Street or whatever it is, I don't know. But it doesn't make it okay, the values that it's espousing. Just because everyone watches a particular series doesn't make it okay. Just because everyone's on TikTok doesn't make it okay or Instagram or t t YouTube or Snapchat or whatever. It doesn't necessarily make it okay. Just because all my friends are doing it all, you know, it, it is, it, there's, there's a dumbing down. I don't know how else. I'm, I'm probably uh, trying my hardest to get this across this morning. And it's the kind of question we need to ask ourselves to be really brutally honest. What do I need to do? What does God, what would God have me do? Will this honor God? Will this bring glory to God? 
because it's, it's a taking a focus off self and it's saying, God, I, I want to please you and, I, and ultimately that means serving others and, and resolving to focus our life on Jesus, to fix our eyes on him. He's everything. He's the author. He's the perfecter. It's all about him. The New Testament starts with his family tree. And that genealogy includes Tamar, the adulteress. It includes Rahab, the prostitute. It includes Ruth, the non-Jewish Moabite. Solomon, who was conceived after David's adulterous affair with Bathsheba, as, many, as well as many others. doesn't sound like a really good family tree, does it? I mean, there's some scary stuff there. Uh, but but God uses sinful human beings, and therefore He can use us. We, can, we can't change the past, but with the grace of God, we can change the future. And God can and does take a seed of faith and breathe life on it. From the faith of Abraham, the praise of David, the purpose of Elijah, the favor of Job, the protection of Esther, the boldness of Peter, the revelation given to John, just to name a few. Whatever your past, however broken your life might seem right now, God can use you to do something great with your life. God's not looking for ability as much as he's looking for availability. And it will require faith and action. And uh, I've got a lot more that uh, I've prepared. But I think for this morning, um, I'm going to land it on that because those questions are available on a handout. If we need to print more, we'll print more. But um, there's 40 there. And I gave some out at the Connect group tonight, uh, well, this week in, in our home. And so maybe just go to that last slide, Jed, is um, of the, the prayer of commitment uh, or covenant prayer. And because uh, I, I was going to be speaking about two cities and, and uh, there's a heavenly Jerusalem that's coming down, the church, the bride, the radiant church. And then there's also the, the apostate Babylon, you know, the Babylonian system of this world that's demonically inspired and we know very well what's happening in that one. And we'll look at that perhaps next week. But this covenant prayer in the Wesleyan tradition, it's quite small writing. I hope you can read it. I'll, I'll go through it. But can you read it? Oh, yeah. Um, maybe, maybe just you work through it, read it. Um, and maybe it's even some, just some quiet music. Is that possible? Um, yeah, Lord, even as we look at this prayer now, it's not just a liturgical thing to go through and just sit, you know, speak out, but it's, it's something, Lord, you want it from our hearts. And, uh, and it, even as that prayer was shared by Sue earlier, a prayer of commitment, recommitment, God, let this be also a consecration unto you, a covenant, a covenanting unto you and saying, God, here I am. Thank you, Lord.